0: Temp check.
1: How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they
0: message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai
0: Santa Fe and hit the road
1: I'm Paul Gilmartin, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, 90 minutes, actually closer to two hours today, 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling, it's not a doctor's office, it's more like a waiting room where we hold your hand and let you cry and then we comfort you with a sweet, sweet dick joke. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the uh, Twitter name you can follow me at. Um, what I want to mention oh, uh, those of you that live in Portland, I'm coming to Portland to do the Bridgetown Comedy Festival uh, April 18th through the 21st. So I'll be doing my uh, satirical character up there, and I might even be doing a live mental illness happy hour. Um, episode, but I'm not I'm not sure. It kind of depends on what guests are available and what venues are available. Um, could that be more <laughs> more kind of not firm, what I just said. Um, and I also might be in any other city around the country at some point in the future. Uh, I've been getting emails from some of you guys asking if we could do um a little better job of tagging each of the episodes, uh, which makes total sense to me because I know some of you are looking for episodes on specific subjects like bipolar one or you know sexual abuse or schizophrenia, etc. cetera. Um, I could use your help on that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a thread in the forum called tag the episodes. And then if you guys would create um, threads for each episode, and then you can kind of put what you think the the six major tags should be for for that episode. I hope that doesn't sound too confusing i'm a little confused. The other thing I want to give a shout out to is if you're a, a war veteran and you live in the l a area uh and you'd like to be a guest on the show, please uh, shoot me an email mentalpod at gmail dot com i'd uh I'd like to talk to you because i uh, I want to get some more vets on this uh on this show. I think that is about it. I want to kick it off with some survey responses from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This first one's from Dana. She's uh, in her 20s. About her depression, she says, I should make myself lunch, but instead I'll lie down on the kitchen floor. I fucking love that one. Uh, About her anxiety, she says, everything is permanent, so I can't do anything. Uh, This next one is from uh, 0001, Lonely Avenue. He's a male, he's bi, he's in his 20s. And about his depression, he writes, fat, ugly, sweaty, weird, awkward, dying alone. About his alcoholism slash drug addiction, he writes, "Uh, weed makes a twig of a creative scenario into a giant redwood, for better or worse. Uh, About his sex addiction, he says, my fleshlight looks like an old woman's neck. Thank you for that. Um, OCD inconsistent, but when it kicks in, it kicks my ass. Um, sex crime victim, uh, suppressed somewhere deep down, likely to all flood back when uh, the precise second I realize true happiness. Thank you for that. And um, this next one is uh, same survey filled out by Ashley M. She's female. She's bi. She's in her twenties. Uh, about her trick to tilomania. she says searching for the hair that doesn't feel right out of boredom out of stress out of nervousness feeling instantly better when I hear the satisfying pop of it from my scalp and not being able to stop if I tried this one's from raccoonery same survey she's uh, straight in her 30s and about her depression she says feels like swimming through tar about her anxiety, she writes, feels like the monster under my bed as a kid grew up with me. Now even though I can't see it, it's big enough to eat me alive and hiding around every corner. About her hypochondria, she writes, feels like I am a vulnerable bag full of throbbing organs waiting to malfunction at any second. And about her PTSD, she writes, feels like the world has claws. This next survey I want to read is from uh, filled out by a guy named Mike. He is straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. Deepest, darkest thoughts? I often think of suicide and how to do it. Other shameful thoughts include sex with children, sex with relatives. Deepest, darkest secrets? He writes, I've had sex with my older half-sister as an adult at 25 years old. It was consensual. It didn't live up to the fantasy, but we both enjoyed it, and on occasion we still have sex. When I was young, five to eight, my full-blood sister and I played, quote, games where we were naked and did some stuff. I don't remember if it was her idea to do this. I don't remember asking to do, uh, to or any memory just preceding one of our games. Uh, I've taken pictures of my stepdaughter naked without her knowing, and I hate myself for this. I'm so thankful she never knew or found out and was thankful for not having the temptation when I left her mother. I never wanted to hurt or scare her. I was just so compelled to do it that I couldn't not. I'm going to regret acting on those impulses for the rest of my life. I feel I deserve every mother and father of a teen daughter to beat me to death. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, he writes. Sex with my older half-sister and sex with teen girls. I wanted to have sex with my half-sister ever since I knew what sex was. As for the sex with teen girls, I think it goes back to when I lost my virginity to a 16-year-old. To this day, it was the best sex. I think my fantasies with teen girls is that though I would never do it, I'll think about it but I could not ever have sex with someone that young. I couldn't because no matter the situation, it would be me taking advantage of them. I know how I feel about what I did with a camera, and I would no doubt kill myself if ever I followed through with it. As for my half-sister, we talked about it one day and agreed to do it since we were both, quote, givers, and neither of us had been with another, quote, giver. We had sex, and it was enjoyable, but not what I thought it would be. We still occasionally have sex, but I still don't really know what to make of it now that the fantasy is real. I know that I don't feel as guilty now that she knows. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He writes, no, never a partner. And it, and the two friends that know only half know that I wish I hadn't told. I think I understand that. Not really sure. Um, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, self-hatred, disgust, failure as an adult... Failure to control impulses. Well, I hope Mike, if you're if you're still having if you're still failing to control your impulses that you that that you go get you get help. But um, I hope along the way you continue to have some compassion for your for yourself. You know, we don't have to wait until we are the idealized version of ourselves to begin to uh, have compassion for ourselves. Easier said than done. I want to take it out with this is from the Happy Moment survey, filled out by a woman, uh, calls herself Tishandra. She's straight, she's in her 30s. And her happy moment uh, she writes One day in the spring in Civic Center Park in Denver, I was reading a book, and all of a sudden, all of the cherry blossom trees started shedding their petals. It was raining petals like snow. All I could think was, This is what it's about. This is what life's all about those beautiful things you can barely grasp. I've tried to go back every year at the same time, every year for 20 years to no avail. It doesn't matter because that beautiful memory of knowing life will be with me always. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. I'm here with Stephanie Wilder-Taylor, who, um, as if she doesn't have enough shit on her plate, she needs to uh, to come do this podcast. Stephanie and I have known each other for probably, what, about 15, 16 years?
0: At least, yeah.
1: But haven't really spent any time in, in the last probably 12 years. We used to play cards together.
0: Yeah, we did. Poker.
1: Um, Was it Mark Cohen's place that we would mostly go play at? Mark Cohen and Mike Platt. Do you plan. remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for those of, the, of you that don't know, uh, S- Stephanie has a show on Nick Mom. That would be
0: most people yeah. that don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's called Parental Discretion. She has uh, three books out, a fourth coming out right now. Is I it? have four books out. Four books out. Yeah,
0: working on a fifth.
1: Um, uh, sippy Cups Are Not for Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Uh, nap Time is the new happy hour. Yeah. Uh, What's the other? It's two?
0: not me. It's you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then uh, my last one is I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> I, uh,
1: you know, just from the title alone, I, I you know, they're all uh, the says, last
0: two are essay books, all about my delusions of grandeur.
1: Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to read that one. <laughs> I should have re- I should have read it before uh, before this was, but I was too uh, busy picturing myself in moments of grandeur. <laughs> uh, you also are a mom.
0: Yes, I have three girls.
1: And you do a podcast uh, with Lynette Carolla mm-hmm. um, called...
0: For Crying Out Loud. For
1: Crying Out Loud. Yes. Uh, any other things that I'm missing? And I, you used to do stand-up. Do you still do stand-up?
0: I did. Well, when I was getting ready to shoot my show, uh, since it was 26 episodes, and I, I, I don't know if you know Hugh Fink... He's I do the, know Hugh. Yeah, he's yeah. the he's the EP. Oh, cool. It's it's the two of our show. And uh he forced me to go do stand up, which I hate. I can't stand performing. But uh I know that sounds weird, right? But, but I really don't like do, it. You used to I do stand up. Yeah, and I never liked it. My, I, I didn't like it. I like I love having performed, but I don't like right. anything leading up to it, and I most of the time don't enjoy the actual even being on stage part.
1: Do you enjoy this is probably a stupid question, but the crafting of the joke, yes. and getting the response that you hoped to yes. get. Yes, okay.
0: That's the that's the thing that keeps me coming hook. back. Yeah, but I feel like when I became a writer years ago, I was able to quickly let go of the performing part because yeah. I was getting that I was getting filled up by the writing of it.
1: Uh, and you've done a bunch of television appearances to uh, promote your book. You were on Oprah, uh, Dr. Phil, twenty twenty, uh, The Today Show. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, it's cool. Some of it it was some of the things were to promote the books, and then later I was on there about like after I quit drinking and got a lot of attention, weird mm-hmm. attention for that. Then I was on the shows being the person who wrote books with alcohol in the title who now doesn't drink.
1: Oh, okay. And how long have you been sober? Uh, three and a half years. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, where will? How be- long
0: have you been sober? Uh,
1: nine. Wow. I'm three times better. Yeah where would be a good place to start with uh with your story i don't know where where, where were you raised and what was your uh family environment like
0: well uh i was i was born in new york my mother was married to a stand-up comedian really yeah who was uh kind of famous in but in the 60s and uh early 70s stanley myron Handelman. He was started as like a Catskills comic, but he was sort of Woody Allenish, and And uh, he was famous for like people that would know comedy from that era, you know. And he was on Merv Griffin and, and uh, Carson and all those shows years ago.
1: But he Wasn't was not Carson. But he was not your biological father. He was my biological oh, was? father, yes. Okay.
0: Then when I was four, then my parents moved out here for his career in show business. And we lived in a big house in Westwood. Then... When I was about four and a half, they got divorced. And then I was really poor. And then my mother married his best friend. Really? Yeah. Who was like a fa- friend of the family. It's all kinds of fucked up. And then he became my stepfather. And uh, yeah,
1: not a. How, how was it received that uh, your stepfather started dating your mom?
0: I, you know, I don't know. Did
1: it lead? Was that what caused the divorce or was it well after? the You divorce? know,
0: my mother swears that she was not cheating and that, uh, that had nothing to do with it. She tells me that they were friends and that basically he took sides and that they spent a lot of time together and were like very close friends and that maybe my father was cheating anyway. He was kind of, I think they were, I don't know. I don't know. You know she's always been very private about that kind of thing. I don't think she was cheating i I think he was pissed uh but i don't I don't really know
1: okay, and so what was it like um obviously, since most people don't have memories before four um what was it like being raised by your mom and your and your stepdad and and did you stay Not out good. here? You stayed out here the whole time?
0: I lived here till I was twelve. then we moved to Spokane, Washington because my mother decided that she, I don't know, wanted to get out of LA. And she was always the breadwinner. So my stepfather was kind of this uh, hippie, anti-authority, like, you know, fuck the man kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And so he just went along with what my mom wanted to do. He considers himself very counterculture. And uh, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so we went with my mom. To Spokane, Washington, maybe, and that was a train wreck. Maybe
1: they thought, our child is a little depressed. Let's get the sun out of the equation.
0: <laughs> that is so true. Yes. Was it depressing? Uh, yeah. And I have that seasonal affective disorder or whatever. <laughs> so I was, yeah. Oh, and I also, I mean, I think I was just a sensitive kid. But, um, you know, I had migraine headaches I think from thinking back probably from the time my parents were, my mother was getting divorced. So at five I was getting migraines taken to doctors. And of course in those days they didn't have real tests for my, I don't think they do now anyway, but, um, you know, so they thought I was making it up. So I would have these horrible headaches Ugh. and, uh, was told basically that I was making it up. <laughs> and then when we moved, they were just as bad. It, and I would, I just remember wanting to come home, from, you know, having, being in the nurse's office and my mom just so mad that she was having to come pick me up from school because I had a, had a headache. Yeah. Oh. So let's see. So then I didn't really have much contact with my father. Then we moved to, uh, when I was 16 in the middle of high school, things were going very badly for me with my family. Uh, and then we moved to, well, they moved to Springfield, Massachusetts, you know, which is always what you want to do is move from one (laughs) shitty small town to another shitty one right in the middle of high school. So I got to start my junior year in another city with a family who wasn't speaking to me really.
1: What was, when you said that the things weren't good in the family, can, can you be specific?
0: Yeah. My stepfather and I did not get along ever. And, uh, he You know, I'll I'll never probably really understand why. I mean, I've had many years of therapy and pretty much what therapists said is I was, I became the designated problem in the family. You know, my parents got along great. They never fought. So any tension I think that was going on was kind of aimed at like this person is the problem. So I was selfish and I was a troublemaker and I was, and I remember years later just going, What did I do? You know, I didn't get in trouble in school. I didn't have a drinking problem at that time. I didn't do, I didn't get kicked out. I didn't really, I wasn't stealing. I wasn't an actual troublemaker, but according to them, I was a horrible person and causing all kinds of problems in the family. So I don't know, my stepfather just didn't like me. He hated me, I would say. So at one point when they were planning to move, I said, why don't I stay here? And uh I'll, I was going to live with my best friend who lived across the street. And her. she was being raised by a single mom. They lived in a big house. The mom was more than happy to take me in for the last two years of high school. And my mom said, no, absolutely not. You're coming. And I remember thinking, why? Nobody likes me. You don't want me with... I don't get it. I think it was a, an appearances
1: thing. Wow. I can't imagine what that must feel like having your mom knowing that your mom and your stepfather don't like you
0: yeah it wasn't good didn't you know make for healthy relationships
1: (laughs) so you moved to. i like
0: leaving the host of the mental illness happy hour speechless (laughs)
1: Well, it's just—it feels like You've something's had worse missing. Off than me on your show, right? Yes, it's—it's it's not the—it's it, not the the gravity of it either. It's because we've certainly had uh, you know heavier childhood stuff than this, but it's just—it feels like there's a piece missing. Right. Like there's, so I can't imagine what that must feel like when you're, when that's your life that has the piece missing, where your life I think.
0: What, that my stepfather had a lot of problems. His childhood, he was raised in foster homes. You know, he, and I believe that they had this relationship that, you know, when I, I think it's very dysfunctional, they don't think it's dysfunctional. I think my mother was very codependent. And I think that he never liked the fact that there was this kid in the equation that was from a past relationship that took away from, You know, I think that he felt that he never, he'd never been married before and he was very dependent on my mother. And I just don't think he liked having to fight for her attention. He didn't like Uh it. So I think that he just made teams, you know. So I was the, well, I was the A team, I think, because I was there (laughs) first. But, you know, in his mind, so he, and I, he'll never listen to this. I think he's crazy. You know, I think he was mentally ill and, I think that he was paranoid I think he has a lot of issues and I think he made stuff up all the time that I was doing and told my mom and had her convinced that I was not a good kid so it was yeah it was awful for me I felt lonely and I felt like nobody was on my side and I kept getting moved so then I would have to start over somewhere else where you know what I mean and I didn't feel like anybody ever looked at the situation I look back and I was definitely being abused, you know, emotionally abused. And I remember screaming and crying in my house and thinking, why doesn't any people know this is going on? They have to know. They know he's people on the outside have to know he's kind of crazy. And I would have these screaming fights with him where I would end up on the front lawn begging for somebody to call the police. And I remember thinking like, no one's ever going to help me. Like, I'm never going to get out of this until I can live on my own. Oh, my God. Yeah, it just wasn't good, but and it's never really been acknowledged. But here's the good news: I have a brother who's seven years younger than I am. He's awesome, and he's he lives like two minutes from me, and he saw it. You know what I mean? So I have somebody else to validate the crazy, which really helps.
1: Oh my god, that's underrated. Gotta be, yeah, that's. I my brother is that way for me, and it's really nice, really nice yeah. to be able to have that because. Uh, parents can make you crazy. They can. And I would imagine parents also say that about kids. They can make each other crazy.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So you moved to uh, Massachusetts for your last two years of high school.
0: Yep. And then as soon as I graduated high school, I opted not to go to college because I was just unhappy. And I, I remember thinking, I know I'm supposed to go to college and this is what I'm supposed to do. But that's the four more years living in Massachusetts. You know, I had horrible grades. So there was, I wasn't going to go anywhere but UMass because it was a state school. Uh, So I just said, screw this. I'm going to, I'm going to move to LA and just start over back where I feel like those are my roots. I feel like, you know, I knew my biological, I hadn't spoken to my biological father in many years, but I knew he lived in LA. So I had this fantasy of moving out here and somehow maybe getting into show business or just... He wouldn't
1: call you on your birthday even? no. No. You must have felt so incredibly abandoned.
0: <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you must have felt so loved and cherished <laughs> by that family. Uh, yeah, I did. You know, it took a long time to kind of get over it.
1: Did you, in the beginning, just think it was you and you deserved some of this, or all along, did you? Of course. You... Yeah. Oh, you did?
0: Yeah, I still have that. You know, I still, I still, that's one of my fears is like that she was right, you know, that at some point people will figure out how unlovable, you know, what I, that I'm selfish and I'm, all the things that she said about difficult, you know, and then people will go, oh yeah, why didn't we see that before?
1: It's so funny because the, the, all the times that I spent around you, I mean, true, it was just playing cards and shooting the shit, but you get to know somebody's personality when they're, when you're, you're playing cards, cause there are certain things that people like or don't like and right. Um, And there are certainly people I played cards with that rubbed me the wrong way. But you were never one of those people, not even close.
0: Well, thanks.
1: Yeah. You too. The rest of you, I find (laughs) off-putting, offensive, (laughs) tiresome, and a fourth thing that I can't think of.
0: (laughs) There's an actual poker hand named after you.
1: I know. The Gilmartin. The worst possible hand you can have in (laughs) poker. Seven, seven cards, the lowest seven cards without there being a straight or a flush. Right, right. I uh, I guess I should let the listener uh, know about that. It, uh, I was very into my drinking uh, when I was playing cards. Not a good card player to begin with. <laughs> then you add some scotch and some beer on top of it, um, a little bit of TV money and uh, so I would stay in every hand, right, right. and uh, oh, people were very happy when I came through the door. <laughs> very happy when I came through the
0: door. That's funny,. Yeah. Uh, I remember getting
1: so high with Brian
0: Dunkelman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had somehow smoked some medical marijuana, right, and I don't I re- all I remember we were playing we were at uh Zoe Friedman's husband, hmm Steve Peckingham. Did you ever play with I him? don't. No, I didn't. All right. We were at his house. So we were in Venice. And I just remember Brian and I looking across the table at each other, freaking, like going, are you high? I am so high. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. But I was yes. winning hands yes. only because I couldn't get out of the hand because yes. I wasn't would forget what game we were playing. Yes. Like in the middle of the hand, I would yeah. go, I don't know what game this is. I don't know what wins. Yes. So I would just keep calling bets. And then I would lay out my cards. And I remember Janae. Uh, would go you fucking won what is going on <laughs> oh my god I- and i was really scared i had to make my i was dating my husband at the time i had to make him come come get me oh, I, my
1: god. Yeah. oh my god oh my god oh drugs oh drugs and alcohol <laughs> where would where would be a good place uh next to to go in your in your story because i definitely want to um, talk about the 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 drugs and alcohol and you know bottoming out from that Uh, well let's go there okay well i was a big drinker in high school
0: uh but i don't i and i it's funny because i wrote about this in one of my books about getting sober and when you think back you know i realize the way i always i mean when i got sober and really hit my bottom and was like oh my god i'm an alcohol like there's no denying it i could look at the first time i drank and go hello <laughs> Hello, alcohol problem. Yeah. How are you?
1: <laughs> no moderation. Blacking out?
0: No, I blacked out from the first time I drank. I would get really drunk, make out like make out with like three guys in a night. Not remember. Have to be told the next day. But the and this was at like fourteen, fifteen years old. You know, maybe not the making out with that until I was sixteen, but just doing things that I wouldn't normally do. Uh, and just being so drunk and then so hungover the next day that at 15 years old, I tried to quit drinking. That's like,
1: <laughs> that's
0: my friend. That's I, not a
1: good sign. No. And at 15, you're like, I got a problem.
0: I, yeah, I was like, God, all we do is drink on the weekends. Well, so I have to like stop doing this to myself. So my friend and I decided we were going to get sober together. I don't know if we called it that in those days, but we were going to quit drinking and we tried to do other things. Like, I don't, I think we went to some basketball games, you know, school basketball games. And after like three weeks, we realized the error <laughs> of our decision. Like, this is not a good way to go. This is really boring. So I started drinking again. And, uh, yeah, I think I just thought that's what people did. I thought it was normal. I mean, my high school was one of the top drug and alcohol schools.
1: You thought it was normal for people to drink and drink use drugs or yes. or, to, or to get blackout shit-faced?
0: Well, I think that I thought that everybody else must get that drunk, too. Okay. You know what I mean? Because when you're really drunk, I think you just assume... um, Plus, (laughs) when you're in high school, there are usually other people who are really drunk, too. Yeah. I don't think I noticed that I had an actual problem until... Or that maybe something wasn't... Well, around the teenage years, I, I developed an eating disorder, which... I'm sure from talking to uh, so, lots so, of women, it's it's pretty typical.
1: So you get a double major.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think I really started to excel in the eating disorder aspect of it, and which kind of put the drinking back a little bit. What was the eating disorder like? It was it was awesome? It was <laughs> uh, uh, horrible. It was you know I discovered bulimia, so I was uh, eating and then puking, and then I moved when I was 18. I started this like in high school. Started perfecting it really like senior year of high school, and then I moved to LA, and then I was very isolated, and I think that that's it really escalated. And I would spend all this time alone in my apartment, just just you know buying food and eating and having these like it was very secretive and it was very uh, controlling behavior, very addictive bulimia is very addicting the act of it and the whole. The, the feeling it gives you—you you become addicted. It's
1: yeah. I've heard people say it's it's euphoric.
0: It's euphoric and it's a a, a release. And I I have to say that I went to a twelve step program for that when I was only twenty one. I knew I was I had a big problem, and it was so much shame—more shame than a drinking problem—because it's gross. It's like drinking is at least socially acceptable. You don't go to a party and start right. like. Hey, let's eat a bunch of food and make ourselves throw up. <laughs> right. It'll be awesome.
1: Where does the euphoria come in uh, a- after you vomit?
0: Yes. So there's all this anxiety where all day long you're going, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then it's just this tension builds up where you have to get the little angel on one shoulder and the devil on another shoulder. And they're arguing all day long. It's just in it's. Horrible.
1: So you might as well capitulate to get the the arguing to stop, right?
0: It's like that thing that I'm sure alcoholics have. I didn't have it with alcohol, but I hear people talk about it and I relate it to the food where they go. I just was like, I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink today. And then you just like, you just can't stand it anymore. And the obsession is so great that you just go, screw it. I'm going to just do it one more time. And then tomorrow I'll start over. Yeah, I won't do it tomorrow. I didn't have that with drinking because oh, I didn't so, try that hard you, not to do it.
1: Okay, cuz it just just sounded like you said that about drinking.
0: I said I've heard people describe oh. drinking that way and I could relate it to the bulimia. Okay. I could go, I know that addiction from the food. Th- I know it from waking up in the morning and being today I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it and then I just could, you know, just build through the day and then I had to do it.
1: And so the payoff was the feeling after you throw up or was the feeling? Yes, it was
0: a calm. It was like a drug.
1: And was the, I would imagine, though, getting to eat as much as you wanted of whatever foods you wanted, that that had to be pretty addicting, too. Or was that not even really a yeah. part of it?
0: Yeah, because it's just a substance, you know, like anything else. So it was that feeling of getting to eat that food. But then it was the getting rid of it. That that's, gives you a like a numb, just kind of euphoric, but more just numb and calm so it, whatever anxiety has been building up through the day, all of a sudden it's just gone. Wow. Yeah.
1: I've never heard anybody describe it like that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Cause now I understand it a little bit more. I always thought it was about getting to eat foods that you were, that you didn't want to gain weight from.
0: I think it starts out that way for people, but just as anorexia you know it's not about the not eating it's about the control and it's about the high that people get from starving themselves right. the, the bulimia is the it's the same thing but it's the stuffing yourself until you're sick and then you, when you throw up that's when it's just like it does something to your brain it changes the chemistry in your brain for that for a period of time you're really calm you could go to sleep you know it's like doing a drug yeah. and then you wake up the next day and you It starts building again
1: and that's what a a lot of people that aren't uh, addicts of any sort don't understand is you know aside from the the drugs and alcohol and stuff that are uh, external substances that you put into your body there are for instance people that get high on shoplifting or people that get high on acting out sexually or people that get high on you know something else whatever there is a pharmacy in your brain that you can trigger, and a lot of people don't realize that is what makes it so difficult for these people to quit. Is because when you, that pharmacy is open twenty four hours a day, right? You can access it any time you want, right? And and that's uh, that's a pretty that's a pretty big cross to bear if if you really truly are are addicted.
0: Yeah, because I, I truly believe that people, there are probably tons upon tons of women who have dabbled in bulimia, but it didn't catch on with them because they didn't get that feeling. Just as there are people who drink and they're not alcoholics because it doesn't release that same feeling. Right. You know, if it hits something in you that you go, this works. Oh yeah. Then you start repeating it because you need something that works and then you can't stop. And all of a sudden you can't stop. And that's really scary.
1: Yeah, and it, you know, it had never occurred to me that other people didn't feel that beautiful release from right you know, three or four beers and hit a hit of weed that, that, that I would feel it was a, it was a rare combination of relaxation and excitement that was inaccessible to me the other 22 hours a day. Right. And I just assumed every other person was like that. So when I would see somebody leave a half, you know, half of a drink on a table, I would look right. at them like a Martian. Like right. How do you, how do you not want to get to beer number four where everything gets made okay? Right. Right. Yeah. Well,
0: I couldn't understand people in those days that could eat a couple of cookies <laughs> and not have to eat them all. Right. I, I mean, I still don't understand that. I still think my brain is different, you know? Yeah. But after I stopped, after I got help for the for the eating disorder and when I when I was finally free of that, the drinking came back in. See, I didn't know. I didn't know. I just thought maybe I wasn't, didn't have a, you know, I just thought, oh, well, that's how I drank in my teenage years and now I don't drink like that anymore. And it's because I found something else that did it just as well for
1: me right
0: so once i wasn't doing that the drinking got bad again
1: the the whack-a-mole
0: in my 20s
1: yeah Uh, yeah
0: the whack-a-mole
1: so still have
0: the whack-a-mole i think
1: what what are the things that pop up now
0: you know well it depends when i first quit drinking the sugar got bad again and i was like what is wrong with me like i thought i left that behind so long ago, all of a sudden I was becoming obsessive with the eating and the having binging on sweets, you know. Then I had to go, I uh, had to stop eating sugar. Because I was like, this. I, I'm doing this, I don't feel sober. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, and it's so funny because other a, other alcoholics will be like, don't be so hard on yourself, you know. You can eat sugar, you know. Do, but I knew that I was not doing it the way other people were doing You know what I mean? I didn't feel right about it, so I had to stop eating sugar. Not like I can't eat uh, bread or uh, things that have sugar in them, but I mean desserts. Like I don't eat cookies and ice cream and only because I'll eat them all. Right. You know, I'll eat every dessert that exists. I just don't have, I don't have the shutoff gauge.
1: What was it that made you know that you needed to to quit uh, drinking?
0: Um, Well,
1: are there any stories along the way that you want to share?
0: You know, uh what happened for me is that I did enjoy drinking, but it would get me into a lot of trouble, you know, and there were things along the way where people would call me on it, but I always thought, what an asshole like I remember doing this show at do you remember uh that on Santa Monica Boulevard there was this gay club called Rage? Mm-hmm. It still exists. I'm sure you know mm-hmm. um. <laughs> So there was a a contest there. It was called a gong show. Uh And when I was first doing stand up, my friends and I would go and be in this contest and I would win it sometimes. I had like a little following. And uh, I remember one day not getting my name on the list. So I went across the street with my friend and we just drank ourselves silly. Then I came back and somehow they had come up with a, a spot had opened up. And so not knowing how trashed I was, I was like, yeah, I'll go up. So I went on stage and apparently I don't remember much of this, but I do remember getting booed off the stage and keep in mind, these were my people. Like it would take a lot to get booed off the stage, but I guess I did a joke and then did the like hand over my head, like, Oh, that's over your heads because nobody laughed because I was hammered and they started booing me and I told everybody to fuck off and I got off the stage and the host of the show said to me, You know, I think you need to, oh, it wasn't the host of the show, but there's a woman who booked, a booker happened to be in the audience. And she came over to me and she said, you know, I think you have a drinking problem. I think you need to look at that. And I, for so long had such a resentment against her. I was like, who the fuck does she think she is telling me that I have a drinking problem? Like, you know, everybody gets drunk once in a while. What's the big deal? I'm an artist. You know so that's gonna happen. Yeah, and uh, so there were little things like that. Another one, I got drunk another time on stage, but I, in my mind, I wasn't drunk. And the, but the booker wouldn't book me back because she said she doesn't book comics that drink on stage. That I had in my mind, I'd had like a couple of drinks and was, and I watched the tape cause, and I was like, I was not drunk. I was not drunk, but she was sober this person who booked this room was sober so that was another one there were just things along the way you know and then what happened is uh i would go to parties with my husband but we were just dating at the time and i would just get drunk you know and he he would say and every once in a while i'd be like maybe i have a problem like why do i do this and he thought well i think that um it's hard for you to gauge how much you've had to drink. So if there's like a open bottles of wine and people are just pouring you more wine, you don't have like that shut off gauge. And I do remember thinking that sounds an awful lot like a drinking problem. But I'll go with you on your theory. And so he'd say, you know, if you want, I can let you know, you know, you've had a couple glasses. Like, so of course that went a couple times where you see where that's going. Oh sure. I was like, you're not gonna tell me. <laughs> you don't own me. I am not drunk. You're the one, you're the one who's drunk. You know, (laughs) my husband is very responsible. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't drink like I, you know, so anyway, that went on a little bit. And then, uh, I got pregnant with, and we, so we got married. I was, got totally drunk on our wedding night. And, uh, I got pregnant right after that we got married, though, like a few days later, I got pregnant and I didn't drink. Well, I remember that I was told you can have like a glass of wine a week Mm -hmm. and I was able to stick with that and had no problem with it. And I remember very fully thinking in my head, well, look who's not an alcoholic (laughs) (laughs) and thinking that I deserved a little parade for all the not drinking I was doing while I was pregnant. You know, I look that, back and that I go, that's atti- troubling.
1: That attitude alone proves that you're an alcoholic.
0: I know, uh, right?
1: Yeah. Because okay. it's so not, it, the, most people don't understand that the alcoholism is not really about the alcohol. That's just right. a symptom of the underlying right. problem. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, the thing was, is, prob- is the hormones, the pregnancy hormones, looking back, evened me out. So I didn't need to drink. Like it, it did. It changed my brain chemistry a little bit. And for some people, it makes them really crazy. For me, it had it calmed me down. So I didn't need to drink. So as soon as I had the baby, though, I had postpartum depression, full on postpartum anxiety, depression. I didn't know it though. I just thought this sucks. This is horrible. All these people that have told me that having a child is the best thing that's ever happened to them are fucking liars. And I hate every single one of them. And I wish I could take it back. It was, you know, it was awful being me for that
1: beginning part. And, um, how long, how long did that last for?
0: Well, for a while, you know, for a while, like for months and months and months. And I didn't, because I didn't know that, it, i didn't know that i had postpartum depression i i thought something was wrong because i was crying all day long every day so i went to the doctor and i said i think something's wrong because i cannot stop crying and i'm not normally a person who cries all the time and he said well you know you just had a baby that's to be expected you know it makes people emotional and i was like
1: not all know. day every
0: day no so he said you know Why don't you see how it goes And two more weeks? If in two weeks you're not feeling better, come back in and maybe we can prescribe you something. So I said, okay. So a couple weeks go by feeling just as horrible, if not worse. Go back in. I'm still feeling bad. So he prescribed me a Lexapro. So I took a Lexapro. I immediately became manic. That night. Really? Went into a full-on manic-like...
1: And you're not the first person I've talked to that got manic from Lexapro. Really? Oh, yeah.
0: Well, it was uh, not good. So I called my mother around midnight, which shows you that I was manic, because I just yeah. called her up at midnight, and I was like, hi. I, I just went to a book club meeting, and I think I was talking a lot of nonsense, and she, I said, I th- I'm feeling really, really uh, fine, but I feel like I've had like a lot of coffee, and I haven't had any coffee. And she said, well, what's different? Did you take anything? And I said, well, I went to the doctor today and I I got a Lexapro, but I've only taken one Lexapro. And she said, yeah, and do not take any more. Stop it immediately. So I didn't go on anything. So anyway, long story short, uh, like a a year later, my daughter had to go to the emergency room for, uh, she got dehydrated and she was in the emergency room and I had Almost had a breakdown over it. It was just the anxiety went through the roof and I became almost non functional. So I went and sought out a therapist and got on uh, Zoloft and felt better. But the problem is still drinking. I was drinking. Mm. So I was taking Zoloft, drinking a lot of alcohol at night and started taking a not Xanax. What's the other one people take? Clonopin.
1: Was that prescribed?
0: Yeah, so he prescribed me clonopin for the anxiety. So I was taking like a couple milligrams of clonopin a day and loving it. I was like, "Oh, this is how normal people feel. This is I feel so much better." Then I started to kind of like being a mom, but see, I was doing this like balancing act with all with the medications, you know? So yeah. I'm taking Zoloft, I'm drinking and I'm taking uh the clonopin and I started to think like, I don't know if this is a good idea like this can't be good for my body i think i feel better but i just like i don't i I feel like i'm drinking every single night not really taking a night off so i was like maybe i need help oh so the one night i got really drunk on halloween and embarrassed myself in front of my brother my sister-in-law some friends of my some new mommy friend and her mom i was drunk in front of all these people a couple days later, my sister-in-law takes me to the mall and says, you know, what's going on with you? It seems like you're just like you drink every night. You're kind of checking out. And I felt really ashamed and kind of humiliated and busted. So I was like, maybe I need to do something about this. So I I went to a support group and um, cried and was like, I think I need help. And, and I was I really meant it like that day. And for maybe a couple days afterwards, I I meant it, and then I didn't. Then I thought, you know what? But I can do this on my own. You know, I can, I'm just gonna. I just will not. I'm just not gonna drink anymore. So that lasted six weeks. Then I got pregnant with twins, and then I was able to not drink through my pregnancy with the twins. So again, I'm like, do you see life? I'm <laughs> not an alcoholic. I think <laughs> this is God telling me you don't have a drinking problem. You you were able to. I've now I've quit for. You know, nine months plus the six weeks beforehand. And so I gave myself permission to start drinking, but moderately. And then, you know, we all know how that goes. (laughs) Moderate went down the toilet really fast. And then I was drinking every night again. Too much. And then, uh, you know, I was being, I was, uh, let's just say I found myself putting myself and my children in a dangerous situation. It took one time of doing that. And I was like, you know what? I've always believed that I would never cross a lot. Like there's just a, I was, I I realized that I was acting beneath my own moral compass and only, and when I was drinking and I was like, if I was somebody else, I would be judging myself and going, I would never do that. And I saw this person that was able that would make decisions when drinking that I Stephanie sober would never ever make and can, that's when I really I just took it in.
1: I Can you give us any examples of those?
0: Yeah, I drove drunk
1: with your kids in the car.
0: Yes. And you know nothing happened but I came home and my husband was like what you you just Drove. You were just in the car with our kids. Like, wh- where have you been? And you're drunk. And I, uh, you know, it just, it hit me. I was just like, he's right. I'm drunk. Where's this going? I just did something that I could have killed my family, could have killed myself, could have killed my kids, could have killed somebody else, all that stuff. And I just, I don't, it just hit me. I was like, I have to get help like now or this is gonna happen again. Well, the thing was in my head, I said, I could promise him that I will never ever do it again and he'll believe me, because I'm a good person and he knows I would never do that knowingly. But I know myself, I know I've made that promise to myself a million times of I'm never gonna do this again, I'm never gonna do that again. I can't tell you how many times I said, I'm never drinking again. So I knew on some level that I would drink again and I would get,
1: Cross that line.
0: I knew I would. If I'd done it once, it was only going to get worse, so I just knew that I had to get help.
1: Eventually, all three of you would come in and be drunk. You and the twins.
0: Yes, yeah. So I, uh, you know, so I haven't had a drink since then. And
1: that's three and a half years ago. Yeah. And what have you discovered emotionally from being sober and participating in a in a support group? You know, take the alcohol out of the right. equation. Walk the listener through what you experience.
0: Well, the f- the first thing was actually coming to terms with that I had a drinking problem and, and that's okay cuz i think for so many years the denial was that i don't want to be a person who's an alcoholic. i think it's an ugly word. i think it takes over who you are and then you're that's all you are. and i had that image in my head of like that an alcoholic is, you know, homeless, drinking bushmills out of a brown paper bag and can't hold down a job. and i was like that's not me. i'm so high functioning. most people would never say that most people would not think of me as somebody who has a drinking problem. So I'm, did, I'm
1: still trying to wrap my head around a homeless person's spring in for Bushmills.
0: <laughs> that's so true. See what an alcoholic I am. That's how distorted my thinking is.
1: <laughs>
0: Mad dog 2020. <laughs> yeah. You that's know? more like it. Yeah. That's more like it. Yeah. So the, I had to get over that stigma. Once I, I, ex- I think the whole first year was accepting the fact that I'm actually an alcoholic.
1: Yeah. What what was the fear in your mind? You know, a lot of times we'll kind of put a, a snapshot in our head of what it's going to be like if our fear comes true. What was kind of the fear of people knowing that you were an alcoholic? Was it just you knowing you were an alcoholic or that other people would go, oh, Stephanie Wilder, she's an alcoholic?
0: I think all of the above, you know? Plus the fact that uh, a big fear was, how am I going to cope with my anxiety without alcohol? I thought for sure I was just going to have to be an anxious person and I would just be white knuckling it forever. I don't have a big trust that things will work, be it therapy, be it whatever. I I think when I'm really hungry, I don't believe that food is going to make me feel full. Like I just, whatever I'm feeling in that moment is how it is, how it's always going to be, mm-hmm. and you cannot convince me otherwise. Yeah,
1: it seems so real. Uh, you know, the first 18 years of your life... Weren't exactly a, you know, tour of comfort <laughs> and satisfaction, no. No. and and having your needs met.
0: Right, and alcohol, and food, and substances. Ah, uh, Vicodin. Sweet, sweet Vicodin. sweet
1: Vicodin. Vicodin. and weed. I, I came close to touching the face of God with Vicodin and weed. Yeah, I was like, Vicodin how do people weed.
0: that don't like... I, I've never understood people who don't like opiates. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, yes. how do you not feel amazing <laughs> yeah with a couple of Vicodins yeah, then you. are
1: nauseous. You telling me yes. no, you don't like Vicodin makes me nauseous. <laughs>
0: exactly. What is wrong with those people that are like, yeah. oh, yeah, it makes me nauseous. I, I want to slap those people. <laughs> well, you know that there have been. And s- then take the rest of their Vicodin. Yes,
1: uh, there have been studies done that uh, show that an addict or alcoholic, there are chemicals released in our body that non-alcoholic addicts don't get released that our body but they processes. have to have
0: some amount of that release right or it wouldn't be a narcotic i guess i mean it's a painkiller so it has to work for everybody yes. right yeah
1: on, on some but level it but doesn't it doesn't make have some
0: people you for like just feel like all is okay with the world and they need right. to call every single one of their friends and tell them what a great friend they are
1: <laughs> i just
0: want to connect <laughs> I'm just, no, I'm not high. I'm just thinking about what a great fucking time we had the last time we were hanging out. And I just want to let you know that you're on my mind. I was like, remember, did you ever see a modern romance I was just thinking, look at, look at all my friends,
1: look at all my friends,
0: <laughs> Mr. Popularity. That's how I became anytime I was on opiates. God, I just have such a great life. How do I not recognize this all the time?
1: Uh, it's if so, i could
0: just keep that feeling all, all the time all the time
1: all the time.
0: i think what so when i quit drinking i was very afraid that i would never have that how how do you go through the rest of your life without having that feeling again how do i not ever do vicodin again how do i well the fact that i call it do vicodin is a bad sign that <laughs> things are not all yeah. co- kosher with my drug use yeah. but uh you know and i but the here's the thing though what helped me is that i the last time i had taken vicodin i couldn't get really high from it like i had a whole 100 of them <gasps> hope my husband never listens to this but uh, i had gone to the doctor for my migraines and he i was taking imitrex which is non narcotic and i said but maybe i need something for breakthrough pain you can the listener can hear the air quotes break <laughs> the breakthrough pain you know that pain that the imitrex which always works doesn't work for. So he gave me a hundred Vicodin. I thought he'd give me five. He gave Uh, me a hundred and I took them all in like four days. Are you kidding me? No, because I'm telling you, I'm an, if they're there, I'm going to take them. Why wouldn't I? And I just couldn't, you know, you take a couple, you feel good. So you're like, well, if a couple's good, I'll take a couple more. And before you know it, I'm Matthew Perry, you know, I'm 60 in, in a day. And I'm like, this is not working. I can't get that
1: good feeling from it what was the withdrawal like from from the, did you go through withdrawal
0: no because it was i took them all in in a couple of days i didn't have anymore oh i could never God. become a pain pill addict because i'm too lazy i think you have to have a certain amount of ambition
1: you have to have that on your gravestone by the way
0: <laughs> too lazy to become a pill addict here's the thing how are you going to get them you could buy them through the internet right but then they're gonna come like in a brown packaging
1: and someone's gonna fi- come on someone's gonna
0: right and yeah. plus then you're paying what like two dollars a pill you know then you could try to get them on the street but where, where are you gonna go
1: and you're eventually gonna need more and more and more and more and then eventually you're not even gonna get high from them you're just gonna need them to not feel sick
0: right so I- and I'm you're not like gonna shit <laughs> in a
1: year. Exactly. Did you get constipated from it? Yes, of
0: course. So I was like, you know, I should just stick with the alcohol, which I can just get at Trader Joe's anytime I want without anybody giving me a weird look.
1: Right.
0: So the thing was, is I I knew I had to quit drinking and I knew, you know, that it wasn't feeling that good anyway. So I was like, well, how much worse is it going to be really? You know, I don't know if you had that. Did you have that? I don't know your sobriety story, but it's a crossroads. You have to go... It's going to suck either way. If I keep drinking, it's going to suck. It doesn't feel that good when I get buzzed mm-hmm. anymore. If I quit, it's going to suck.
1: Yeah. So that's wh- That's why I wanted to die. Because it was like, if I get sober, it's going to suck. And continuing to drink, yeah, I feel good for two hours a day. But the other 22 hours are unbearable. I'm so depressed and sad. Right. So, you know.
0: And we don't know, I think, when we're actively... In our addiction, that alcohol is a depressant, you know, yeah. and that drugs are a depressant. So you're doing all this, to, so the anxiety, and it causes more anxiety. But nobody just, told not, me immediately. That. just right. not immediately, just not right. immediately causes the
1: opposite For of rebound. It. For, yeah. yeah, it's the it's, yeah.
0: But nobody tells you that. So like, I had a shrink who was like, "Well, if you're feeling anxious, yes, keep taking the if the Xanax is working, keep taking it." But the problem were is, were you being the,
1: honest with him about your drinking, though? Probably not.
0: Well, here's the thing though, I don't think I was drinking that much because I mean, I was drinking enough, but I was probably drinking like three. I hear people talk about drinking, like going th- two bottles of wine a night and I would be dead before I could get through two. I wasn't drinking that much. It was the combination, you know, I'm on an antidepressant, I'm drinking at least like three glasses of wine a night, maybe trying to get to three and a half, but then I'm also taking Xanax, so, yeah. you know, so I'm going to sleep. So I'm, you know what I mean? So it's like the 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 time that I drove, I'd had, I'd been out somebody's house and I was drinking vodka martinis and I wasn't used to drinking hard liquor. So I mm-hmm. got drunk, drunk, but I was kind of maintaining on this. I just have a few glasses of wine. The problem was I was doing it every single night, seven days a week. I could not take a day off. But so I wasn't physically addicted. I was addicted to the Zoloft and I was definitely addicted to Xanax. You know, that withdrawal was horrendous. As, as
1: you're talking uh, about this, it uh, one of the points that I want to make is the importance of recognizing a pattern of things. So true. W- rather than isolated incidents. Because if you are trying to talk yourself out of, you know, I, I'm not an a- alcoholic, I'm not an addict, you can come up with a thousand isolated incidents where you're like, well yeah, look at that night. I only had two drinks. So right. look at this, look at this. <laughs> but if you wean of that, <laughs> but if you look at it, things, the pattern of things in your life, that is where the truth gets revealed in looking at, at at patterns of things and uh not only with yourself but the way other people treat you oftentimes. You know, there could be that friend that you you just don't something in your gut doesn't feel right, they've never really fucked you over, but if you look at the pattern as a whole, there's just nothing really there that, where they were ever there for you.
0: You, Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Or a
1: parent, where there wasn't something outright, but you look at it over the years and you're like, wow, you know, somebody that really truly loves me wouldn't, have this pattern of activity.
0: I Yeah, I agree. I also think you you look at why... You know, for me, I drank... I, towards the end of my drinking was definitely to quell anxiety. You know, I was self-medicating. And I think that the fear of being anxious was so great that I just did not want... There was no way I was going to recognize that I had a drinking problem until it it had to become so crystal clear to me and i'm so i'm so relieved that i got to see it when i did even though i fought it in my brain for a long time i would hear people talk and go i went to rehab 20 times that's a real alcoholic and i'd go well there you go i'm not a real alcoholic but in the end i had to go well then why am i here i'm here because i don't want to quit dr- i don't want to drink anymore and that has to be enough at some point and then the longer i gave myself permission that that's okay and that's a good enough reason the more i realized oh yeah oh yeah like I, you I, you
1: heard your story told by somebody else did you i uh, heard or my not?
0: story told and it's just the, the bottom line is i'm a person when i start drinking i can rare i rarely can gauge i'm very unpredictable drinker i don't it's when i put it in my body i don't know yeah sometimes i have two drinks and i mm-hmm. but i do i pat myself on the back there you go only had two drinks most of the time i don't most mm-hmm. of the time, I keep, I'll keep drinking until there's either I go to sleep or there's no, or I don't have any more, or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'll try to convince people to drink with me. I was the queen of telling my husband, C- come on, let's just get another bottle. What are you <laughs> kidding me? You don't want to, you know, I couldn't understand that yeah. people
1: not wanting to drink uh, when they could. My wife kind of knew, or I should say, pointed out that I might have a drinking problem when she caught me pounding a glass of wine before we're going out to dinner, because I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you're, you're watching the bottle of wine, the level of it disappear and the table and okay, that person's about to refill theirs. And you know, normal people don't play that out in their head and go, I, you know, I've got to get my three glasses in here because otherwise I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to relax.
0: Right. You know, and, I think it's funny now I, I try not to judge Anybody else's drinking But to me That's such That's the biggest sign That somebody I'm dealing with Somebody who has A drinking problem When I notice I notice the business Going on in their head Around the wine At the table You know yeah. When you're not drinking You can so clearly See the people That are like So uh, are we going to get Wine for the table Oh do, do we want to get To the person Who's going Well may, maybe we need to Should we order two bottles Or yeah. you know When the wine is done That person's Going, yeah. So uh, trying to be too nonchalant about it,
1: <laughs> but you know it's so important to them. Oh yeah, you know it's so important to them.
0: Yeah, and then yeah. when they're when the other person says, "Well, I don't, I don't need any more," and you see the panic set in, and they don't yeah. want to be the person going, "Well, I'm just." Well, I mean, I just thought we should get another bottle for the table. Well, okay, well, I'll just get another glass, and then that, you know what I mean? And I oh, just, yeah. Oh. oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so glad that's not me anymore.
1: So what what else would you like to to talk about? What um do you want to talk about motherhood at all? Um
0: if you if you think that's of interest to anybody?
1: What are some things
0: I've made a living off of I will say off of being honest about the fact that you know motherhood triggers a lot of mental unrest in people. I won't say mental illness but I'll say it it brings out the worst in a lot of people because you know it we I think most women that are sane want to be a good mom but a lot, you know, it's laden with a lot because of all of our upbringings and you know how we want to be different than our parents but how that's all we know and you know um I know a lot of women even normal women that don't have the same stuff I have that it just undoes them, you know? Especially those early months because there's this whole thing where people say it's so amazing and it's the greatest thing they've ever done and they have wanted to be a mother since they were young and most people don't talk about just how draining it is and how hard it is, especially the beginning. So a lot of people have a baby and they're like, "What's wrong with me? Why if I hate this, there must be something wrong with me. I must be a bad person." that I hate this and that I feel like I made a big mistake.
1: That has to be so scary and painful to, to experience that.
0: Yeah, it is. But I think that because I've always been a uh, sort of an outsider, I don't have the same I, I need to blend in. So I've always been more comfortable just saying how things are for me and then mm-hmm. being surprised when people are like, I can't believe you just said that. You know so when I wrote the first book I wrote was about that it was about like let's stop driving ourselves crazy about it's okay if you don't love your baby right away I think it's normal. I didn't, and now I'm totally into my kid. You know, I love being a mom now, didn't at the beginning. I think that's fine. Here's all the reasons why it's not normal to love your kid right away. You don't even know them. You know? (laughs) Seriously, there's all these people like, I loved my baby the first moment I saw them. Well, I didn't love my husband the first moment I saw him. It took a while. You know, you gotta get to know them. It's awesome. They don't have a personality. It's like being set up on a date. That's how what I kind of likened it to in my head. Like, you have just basically a fuzzy picture to go off of, yeah. you know, the ultrasound, and you're just supposed to have all these feelings because it's just a natural because of the chemical. Like, no, not everybody feels that
1: way. You're going to wait until f- the first thing they say and see if it's witty or not.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> the kid says something that's not witty, you just put him in the basket and just drive them and... Yeah. Set them on I somebody's... I don't think you belong here. Somebody's doorstep.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky because my kids are all funny.
1: How old are your kids?
0: The My twins are turning five next month, and my older daughter is turning eight next month.
1: So to somebody that's thinking of being uh, a parent, what would you say?
0: I would say that, uh, you know, hope for the best, but expect the worst. At the beginning it could really suck you could get depressed and just know that that might happen but that in the end i don't have i don't know a single person who doesn't isn't like madly in love with being a parent you know uh, there's good things and there's bad things it's, it's not all the women that are sarcastic and negative about parenting it's there's i think the reason why a lot of people especially moms these days get such a kick out of being negative about parenting is it's because the unspoken part is that we all love it. Like we all love our kids, you know, so we don't have to go around going like, I just love my kids so much, you know, cause then we'd sound like a Stepford person. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it doesn't happen for everybody right away and that's okay. But it, most
1: people come around and some, but some people don't because the, uh, surveys that people take on, on my website, um, more than a few times, I've had people say, uh, "I don't like my kids. I don't like being a mom." Really? Yeah, I don't like being a dad. Yeah, there are there are some people that are that way. Well, I don't think they're they're that's sad. I don't think. Yeah, I think my guess is that. But they're listening
0: to a mental illness podcast, so maybe they have some untreated. Mental illness, you know, maybe there have some, pro- some depression or some anxiety that's blocking them from experiencing joy,
1: experiencing joy, yeah. or bo- bonding to, to other people that that would you be know my guess. They
0: say oh. when you're drinking all the time, ta- when you're drinking or when you're using drugs or when you're doing things to cope, you cut off the anxiety, but you also cut off your ability to experience joy or pleasure or love and or connect. intimacy. Yeah.
1: yeah. And if you've grown up kind of mentally fucked up you think that excitement is the joy that people talk about you think yes. that that burst of adrenaline that you get when the when the buzz hits you you think that that's the same thing as the joy of connecting to another person right but you just don't need people all i need is my my buzz but the joy of connecting to another person is so much more three-dimensional and detailed right. and um Satisfying than than that excitement of of something kind of uh, jolting. It's kind of you know to me, it's kind of like uh, you know the drinking and the drugs. It's kind of like candy for the soul. It it yes. gives you a big burst that feels really good, but ultimately, if that's all you put in there, you are going to get you are going to get sick.
0: Also, this might be a little bit off topic, but I didn't I didn't fall in love for the first time until I was twenty six, and which is pretty late. I had a lot of you know it sounds so cliche to call it problems with intimacy, you know, but i was I was not capable of the thing is I equated love with pining only the pining feeling, so the second somebody liked me back i was i i got uh what my friends and I call the grossed out feeling, you know it's like and it was probably very tormenting to a lot of men that I dated. Because I would like them so much where I would think I was in love with them. And then the second, uh, but especially if they weren't sure about me or if I felt like I was trying to prove it or if there was a lot of anxiety and pining and sadness involved in my wanting them to like me and pay attention to me. The second they liked me back, which usually, whatever, the second that happened, i did not want to be i didn't want them to touch me uh there was things about them that i just found like abhorrent and i can you know wouldn't return phone calls i was done Mm -hmm. cut off and i couldn't get over it i mean i went to therapy i was like why can't i like somebody back who likes me and uh you know it's just something that i i really had to work through but even with my husband i didn't I wasn't into him right away until I felt a little bit nervous about his feelings about me. And that's when I really like, but, um, the thing is, I still know people that equate it, like love with that, only that feeling of being unsure that, which gives you right. that adrenaline, that rush when, then, when they call you, you're exta- you feel that joy and they, you, you never hit that just. It just is. And
1: people think that that is love, and it's not. It's it's an unhealed neediness, right? You know, for for validation, and yeah. if you if you paint love is how it, how it is painted in love songs and in movies, it, it is the biggest myth maker the you know. Movies and 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 love songs, because what it's really des- describing is emotional obsession, right? About people. Real love is about. You know accepting somebody's flaws when both of you are having a shitty day right showing up for somebody even when you don't want to, and yes, you have the joy and you have the intimacy in those moments, and you know being able to disagree in a way that is still respectful to each other right you know, these are things that that love is made of, and so often I think people uh are looking for that high and it's unreasonable it's a childish childish expectation right. of what love's that doesn't mean there can't be excitement and you can't you know get butterflies about that person but
0: But do you really think you get still get butterflies i hear people say that and i don't buy it not after a while
1: not after a while
0: yeah unless the person's making you wonder that why else would you get nervous around somebody that i mean i still look at my husband and go god i'm so lucky you know, I'm so lucky. He makes me laugh so hard or he's so cute or, you know, mm-hmm. just, I'm so happy with him. I'm so happy that we're together, but I don't get butterflies. Even if he's been out of town, I don't go like, Oh, what's it going to be like when I see him? Like, you know what I mean? Right. It's my husband. Right. I, and I think that's, I don't, to me, that's better. I'm glad I don't get, I don't wa- I don't want that feeling. I don't miss that feeling of mm-hmm. wondering how somebody feels about me. I don't, I think I'm. A super needy person, for sure. And luckily, I found somebody you know who our neuroses kind of fit together. And it was, it is healing if you find the right person. You know what I mean? If you can be your most needy, horrible self, and realize, oh, that person hasn't left me. But then it's moving on from there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like once you've like been as needy as you as you can be, and the person didn't go. That's gross. And leave you, then get your shit together, is right. what I say. Because you can't put that on the other person forever, because they are going to leave.
1: To enter into a healthy relationship, I think you should be okay with not being in a relationship. I think that is the, the best way to go in to, to something. Because I think when we go in there in a place of, I have got to find somebody, you're going to find probably... Uh, you, a, you're going you're gonna to date somebody who's going to eventually feel smothered by you, and they're going to break up with you, or you're going to find somebody who is initially seems awesome. But then eventually becomes really controlling and abusive. I see that all the time. Yeah. All the time. And a lot of people accept that because it's familiar to them because they were treated like shit as, as children and they don't know how to leave. And that other person then convinces them nobody else is going to love you. You're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. I read so many emails and survey responses of people that, that are stuck in that pattern and they don't know how to get out of it.
0: Yeah it's hard not to repeat the stuff that we know
1: really I don't hard. know
0: how I I don't know how I did it I have you know I I mean maybe it was because I had a lot of therapy but I I don't know it's so hard if you can do all this therapy and all this thinking about it and analyzing and and I feel like until you are actually in a relationship having to go through it it's sort of like talking about quitting drugs and alcohol like until you do it and you just get in the middle of it and get get to the other side of that beginning part you can't know
1: yeah to me real mature love begins when you are able to tell somebody something that is hard to tell them that you're afraid to tell them but you tell them anyway and you tell them and you're able to tell them in a way that doesn't inflame things that that is kind of couched in love, but is direct and honest. That, to me, is, is really the underpinning, the foundation of a healthy relationship because you're going to disagree about things. But like you're, what? Uh, you know, for instance, uh, I didn't like the way my wife, for years, I let this fester for 20 years, the way she would disagree with me. There was a tone to her voice that was dismissive that hurt my feelings. And it wasn't until one of my support groups about six months ago that I realized. I should listen to that feeling in my stomach when she talks to me that way. She's super loving to me in other ways. That just happens to be she was raised in a household that's very Italian, very vocal and very demonstrative. I was raised in a in a house that's like the movie Ordinary People. Nobody talked about so anything. my husband, yeah. Yes. And and so that it hurt my feelings. And so I was able to come to her and instead of instead of the next time she did it going, fuck you, you know, you fucking cunt. I'm so sick of you talking to me that way. I went to her and I said, I'm
0: glad you didn't call her a cunt. <laughs> I probably that time saved the day.
1: <laughs> I, I can't even remember. I don't know if I've ever called her that. Um, You'd know. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it would still come She's, up in
0: arguments. She Trust probably me.
1: calls herself that, you know, a couple of times a year. But I went to her and I said, I really don't like it when you disagree with me, the tone of voice that you use with me. It hurts my feelings. And she had no idea. And so that's something that she is is working on. And, and she has accepted that. But if I didn't know how at first... If I didn't think I was worth sticking up for, and if I didn't know how to express that to somebody else, there would be a wall between us, you know, or at least a higher wall than there was. There is still a wall in our relationship. We're, you know, we've been in it 24 years, and I am just, I am just learning how to. It's a small wall. It's low. (laughs) Right. It used to be very tall because I wouldn't let anybody in. Right. And I've learned. Brick by brick, how to express myself, and as she has, the the wall gets lower and lower. And I and I think that's what love is is sticking around and saying, "All right, let's get, let's bring this one this next brick down together." And she has learned to express to me that I can be emotionally withholding and cold and uh, inconsiderate. You know, that's something that I've been working on for. For twenty years, but I'm trying to work on it, and I right. and I listen to her because she approaches me in a way that is loving when she say it. You know, it hurts my feelings that you that I told you that this is what I I like for dinner, and you brought this other thing that I've told you like four or five times. I don't I don't like to eat. You cunt. <laughs> you can't. And and so we work on that, and that to me is is love that those, those moments where you're working together in a partnership to do stuff that is not necessarily fun or comfortable. Yeah, does I that, agree. Does that no, make sense? I, I
0: completely agree. My husband and I, early on, you know, there were, certain, there were certain things that he did in a fight that reminded me of my stepfather, and it would trigger me. And I had to tell him, when you do this, which was... When he loses his temper, which is so rarely, but when he does, he he can seem aggressive. I can't really explain it because he's not an aggressive person, but he can he'll, wa- When he would walk towards me, it would kind of be getting in my face. It would. I I had to tell him, listen. When you do that, the response you are going to always get from me is you are going to just shut me down because I am done. Like I'm not, I am not. I won't go there. Like you are going to. So if that's you, your goal, then you are going to succeed we're not it's not going to move forward we're not i'm not going to fight back with you i'm just going to sit down and and shut down and he's told me that when i like uh i tend to get very global like when we get into a fight it's all or nothing like in i am mentally packing my bags even now we've been together a long time and we can get into a small fight and i could be thinking okay whose house would i sleep at do i have any single front do i like, have I alienated all of my single friends? I
1: do the same thing. Who would
0: let me sleep on their couch? Oh, with all my kids.
1: Yeah. Jeez, it, Am I going to get a studio? Yes. A one bedroom?
0: Yes. Am I going to be at the Oakwoods? What, how does do that work? I need work? a pool? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then I'm like already thinking, okay, well, I could be single. I mean, it's going to kind of suck for a while. I mean, I'm in my forties. That's not going to be the greatest situation with three kids. I got a lot of baggage, but you know, I'll make it work. I mean, I'll make it work if I have to, like, I'll, you know, I'll move on and I'll do that. It really, until it takes a while till I have to. So the point is I used to get in fights with him where I would say like, well, then maybe we should get a divorce. How about that? Like maybe if I'm so horrible, why are you with me? Maybe you should meet somebody. I mean, I would go there and after it took a while for him to go, you know, when you do that. It's very unsettling, and it really hurts my feelings. And I would appreciate if we could get into a fight, and you would not use, like, say we're splitting up. You know, that's horrible for me. Not go
1: nuclear on me. Yeah, Yeah. so
0: I have to... And sometimes it does... The words do come into my brain, and I have to go out of respect for him, because I know in my core being that we're not getting divorced over this. So I have to... I have to respect him enough. And we have other rules too no swearing. So I'm not allowed to go, what the fuck? Like, mm-hmm. because it's, and he's not allowed to either. It's just a respect thing. So even when I'm, re- so that shows me that it's a healthy relationship because I'm able to abide by those rules, mm-hmm. even if I'm really mad.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I've discovered is you can you know you'll have that ball of rage or maybe I should just speak for myself but when you get into a, a disagreement sometimes and you're feeling that passion come up you can let it out just don't let it out at them you know like i will say oh i'm so fucking angry right now i can't d- describe what it is that th- that i'm frustrated about but i'm super fucking frustrated and i just want to put my fist through a fucking wall if i let her know that I'm just feeling frustrated and it's not, I I don't want to hit you. I am just feeling rage. Then you're able to let it out. You're just directing it in a healthy direction. Right. Because I don't think there are unhealthy, there are no unhealthy emotions. There's just unhealthy ways of expressing them. Right. You know? Yeah. And I used to think that if I felt something negative, it was, it meant I was a bad person because i was feeling this or that other person had to be wrong. Right. When in reality it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yes. Cuz there could be stuff from 10 years ago mm-hmm. that we don't even realize or from you know for you you did the fact that you realized that that reminded you of your stepfather and that co- caused you to shut down that's a really nuanced mature way of dealing with with something that That, to me, is such a beautiful example of love. That I'm
0: not always great at it, though. I will say that my husband sometimes gets depressed, and that reminds me of my father. When he gets low, I get really scared because my stepfather used to shut himself in his room for like days at a time. And I didn't know it was depression. I mean, he would say he's not feeling well or he has a headache or something, but I learned later that it was depression. And when somebody is feeling low I get really it triggers me I get scared and that sometimes can feel like I'm angry with them you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and he'll say like you can't be mad at me for feeling depressed or feeling low and I, I I will eventually go it's not that I'm mad I'm scared I'm scared that you're always gonna that this is you're always gonna be this way or you're not gonna be accessible now for days at a time you know that and he'll have to say I'm not him Like, I'm a different person, and you know that I always come out of this, and this is just how I feel, and I can't help how I feel. And he's right.
1: And does that help ease those feelings when he says that?
0: Sometimes. But, you know, I've got my codependent things where I, you know... I'm a little bit dependent on his mood and if he's in a bad mood I think yes. it's about me yes. and then I get mad because yes. I think he's mad at me and he's yes. not even mad at me and if I was to just take the time to say are you you know I used to at the first year of our relationship oh my god it must have been so tedious for him it was caught, are you mad at me are you mad at me how about now but now are you mad at me but that last thing I just said did that make you mad is it making you mad at me that I'm asking you if you're mad at me
1: <laughs> I, I'm, I luckily don't do that anymore my wife when she is sick if when I, I try to do nice things for her when she's sick and she doesn't she gets so wrapped up in her feeling of being sick that she forgets to smile. And and it took me 20 fucking years to tell her I, it makes me anxious. And you're it a makes selfish me- cunt as when you're sick. <laughs> It makes me feel taken for granted, and she right. had no idea. Most of us don't know the face that we put on when we're feeling certain things, but the right. other person that lives with that face right. knows it all too well and right. is reading things into it that may not even be there. Right, yeah. And if you don't talk about it, you're never going to know that. And if you don't talk about it in a way that's healthy, right. you're never going to be reach that goal of you both understanding each other because it's going to be, you fucking always do that. Or I'm so sick of your fucking, you know, whatever.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, you know, a long time ago in the first year of dating, my husband, he told me the thing that triggers him. It, we got into this bad cycle early on where I would, because of my past, I would take little things that he did as signs that he didn't like me anymore. This is a big fear I have of that somebody's going to change their mind, but not tell me. They're just going to go along to get along because they're too chicken shit to tell me they don't want to be with me anymore, but they're just going to do little things to kind of show me that they're not into it and make me break up with... Them. I had this whole scenario in my oh head. Oh my
1: God. Crazy, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, continue. This is awesome.
0: So... What I would do is take little things he did. Like if he was late to pick me up, I became like Cosmo magazine and I'd be like, well, he obviously doesn't value my time. So now he's on notice in my head. But you know, just I would just internalize it and then be mad. But then I would think that's kind of crazy, right? Like I can't just come right out and go, well, the fact that you were 15 minutes late tells me that you don't really value my time. And if you don't value my time, you obviously don't really want to be in a relationship with me because somebody who wanted to be in a relationship with me would be early. Like I'd have all these rules going. So I would go like, if I voice that, that's crazy. So I'm just going to have... But I couldn't get out of being mad about it. So I would just be mad. And then he would have to go, is everything okay? You know, he'd have no idea any of this is going on in my head. He'd be like, he had a long day at work. He's a late person, chronically late to this day is still late, but I live with him. So it's, I don't experience the, him coming to pick me up late. He's just late to leave. So anyway... I would go, no, everything's fine. And then he'd go, okay, it really seems like you're kind of pissed off though. And i go, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's (laughs) fine. And we'd go, okay, so later, you know, obviously I would stop being mad at some point or we'd get into a fight. We had a lot of fights the first year, but eventually at some point he said to me, you know, growing up, my mom would get in these really bad moods and be frustrated at my dad all the time. And as a little kid, I always thought it was about me. And it triggers me when you're pissed off and I don't know why, I don't know what it's about. I assume I've done something wrong, that I'm bad, that you're angry at me. And then I kind of shut down. Mm-hmm. And like, whatever, you know, I don't know what this bitch is mad about, but, uh, you know, and so in it, I would appreciate it if, if you're mad at me, if you just tell me. Yeah. And then I said to him, but I'm scared that I'm going to come off like a crazy person and really needy because the stuff I get mad about is... So stupid that I create and he's like, well, then let's have an agreement. You tell me what it is, no matter how dumb it is. And if it's dumb, then I'll just go, that's kind of dumb. And, you know, (laughs) I didn't do anything. And if it's reasonable, then I'll try to correct it, you know? So, oh my God, if that wasn't the most painful thing to have to work through, to have to just be mad and go, okay, I'm kind of mad about something. You're going to think it's stupid. And he'd go, okay, what is it? And I go, well, you know, when I called you and you were kind of quiet on the phone and then I thought maybe something was wrong, but then I, you know what I mean? It would be craziness. And then he'd go, okay, I'm glad you shared that with me. No, I wasn't mad. And I don't even know what you're talking about, but I'm not mad at you. And I wasn't intentionally. And then I'd go, okay. Okay. And then we could move on. That is so. And I still, to this day, have to tell him. I have to. It's a rule in my head. I'm not allowed to be mad and not tell him why, even if it's stupid.
1: That is love. That to me is love. Or certainly, and it's
0: horrible sometimes.
1: A healthy partnership. That is, if if you can't tell the person that you are committed to when your feelings are hurt or when you're scared, your relationship, I think, is gonna. Is doomed. Right. I think it's doomed. Right, and some people don't know how to do that, and that's why I I, I think therapy is so great because the, it's the first place where it's completely safe to say, you know, this hurt my feelings because that person obviously has hasn't done anything to you that you're that you're spilling all of this stuff to, and right? It, and it's a safe place,
0: right? But it's worse if you don't tell them. Oh my, you know, and it just starts like I'll just. Be so bitchy that it's, you know, not fair.
1: And it's never about the thing. No, it's always it's about not. five things ago.
0: Yeah. Or it's just about my imagined, Yeah, you know, he's going to leave me. Especially after I had kids. Oh, my God. I had postpartum paranoia, too. I remember I had made a new friend, a mom friend at a mommy and me group. And we we laugh about this to this day. So I'll preface it by saying she's a super close friend of mine to this day. And so we've known each other eight years. And, but our fledgling friendship, we'd met at this group. We hadn't really socialized before. I think we'd socialized one time and then we were planning, we were going to go for a walk. So she'd come to my house. We both had infants. We were going to go walk around the lake and I had gotten into a huge fight with John where I was flinging around the D word and he got really mad. This was before we made the agreement. We were never going to do that, but my emotions were Going crazy. You mean you I was, were never going to do that. Right. I was the only never going to. Yeah. yeah. I was the only one. But before we had that agreement, and he had said, "Do not please, unless you're serious, don't ever bring up the D word. Unless you're serious Divor- about divorce. it, don't throw that around as divorce. A, right. Divorce. Yeah." yeah so i uh, we'd gone to the and i spent the whole i was insane we i went on this walk with my friend and i was obsessing and going and we got in this fight and he's gonna leave me and and uh it's and I, that never happened again because it was some postpartum like insanity that i was going through but uh we still laugh about it because she was like i go you must have thought i was an insane person and she's like, no, because I was kind of feeling crazy, too. So she goes, I thought it was normal. She was like, thank God. I feel the same way. Like, yeah, yeah our husbands are going to leave us. And we're fat and disgusting and negative And no one will ever love us again. <laughs> Isn't it
1: awesome to get that out? To say that to another person and to feel felt? Yes. Oh, my God. I, I could feel myself just relaxing, just hearing you say that. Just like, oh, that. What it must have felt like to have that inside you and then to have that validated either as crazy or not crazy, but just to to have another person to bounce that off of. And, and when we isolate, which I think most people that are depressed are, we're wired. We're right. wired to, to isolate, either to isolate or drain people. You know, right. <laughs> One of the two. There's like the. This is
0: why I love being honest about this stuff though I got such a when I quit drinking, I talked about it on my blog and I was so petrified that people were going to go, "Oh my god, she's a horrible mother. What kind of a person like is drinking or with their kids and you know I couldn't believe the support and then uh the people that emailed me constantly the stream of it time Day after day after day of people going, I think I might have a problem too. And I and you know, and I realize that there's just such power in being honest in a public forum mm-hmm. that I get such a charge out of people telling me, I was so glad you said such and such, because I feel the same way, or I have these kind of fights with my husband, or I have this you know, not just the drinking, but just the feelings that we all have.
1: The reasons about why life. We, the and, reasons why we drank.
0: Right. You know, I just think that most people don't talk. It's this is not dinner conversation.
1: But it should be. It should be because it's so... I'm so bored when when it's just small talk and talking about the local sports team or the weather right. or... Uh, I want to go, who
0: fucked you up when you were a kid? Yeah,
1: Let's talk about that. Wouldn't that be great? A great dinner party? And you just go around each one, each person you just talk about. Maybe your most shameful moment, your most embarrassing moment. Right. You know, what, what, what are some shameful or embarrassing moments that, that, that you can think of that have happened.
0: Well, the incident that led to my quitting drinking
1: yeah, would be
0: number one. Um when I came to LA I went and tracked my father down. He was performing at a club, at a jazz club in LA and I found him in the LA Weekly and I I went to the club and I had all kinds of like hopes about, you know, this he was going to be so thrilled to see me. And um he didn't recognize me that was a pretty embarrassing, like it felt humiliating. I mean, he saw me and he thought I was a fan, you know? And I, I I said, it's me, you know? And he was like, Kate gave me this look like, and you are, Ooh, like you look familiar, kind of that look. Oh my God. And then I said, it's your daughter, Stephanie. He only has one daughter, by the way, he has kids from four marriages, but I'm the only girl. And, uh, and then he was like, oh, Steph. And then he, but that moment kind of like seared a place in my psyche of like, wow, like he didn't even know. I mean, it hadn't been that many years either. I had seen him briefly when I was 16. So this was when I was, you know, 18 or not. it only been a couple of years. It's not like I changed, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like I was a completely different person or I had yeah. shaved my head or something. So that sucked. Um, Waking up after just being drunk and in my 20s, especially not knowing where I, where my car is. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Sleeping with people that, you know, realizing I didn't know who they, like, not necessarily not know who they were, but, you know, that kind of one night stand. Shame. Yeah. Oh, doing coke, like in my, like at 20.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh my God. I went off with some guy. Well, I wrote this whole story too in, in my book, so I, I've kind of purged some of my most shameful things, but uh, freebasing cocaine in my apartment, I didn't know that it was freebasing at the time, but I knew we were all smoking. I knew it was bad, mm-hmm. Well we, were, we had to be really bad what we were doing and that we were dealing with some really low, like some criminal elements, uh, the people who are giving us the drugs and that smoking, it has to be either for freebasing it or doing something that's Very bad, But, uh, and then I was the only person who was awake. So the guy, this drug dealer guy who was in our apartment, uh, accused me of stealing some rock, some Coke rock rocks. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what you call it. I don't know. Uh, they, I guess they'd fallen in the carpet, but because I was the only person awake, I was accused of stealing the drugs. And I was like, I, and I really didn't. So uh, that was a really bad moment. I almost he he w- was going to go out and get a gun. And I remember oh, thinking oh like, God. okay, I'm a 20-year-old girl who's kind of a goody-goody. I'd only lost my virginity like at 19, the year before. And I just remember thinking, wow, what who am I? Like what What kind of a life am I leading? Yeah. Yeah. I quit. Uh, yeah, I stopped doing coke when I was like 21.
1: Oh, uh, There's nothing worse than a coke hangover. Coke and drinking because you can drink so much when you're on Coke.
0: Yeah, I couldn't drink. I would just sit and grit my teeth and like think crazy thoughts. (laughs) Oh, one time, this one time in band camp, one time I got so, okay, so this was the time I went to a club and then I went off with some guy who said he had a lot of Coke with my friend and I did all this Coke. It was like, you know, the full on 80s, like just doing mounds of coke off a credit card, you know, and got so, so crazy high that I think I had a little, not not psychotic, but a manic, you know, I started, came up with this theory about religion and spirituality that, uh, you know, about how, like, we like ants can't comprehend us. And that's how God is to uh, like, I had all these and I had woken up my roommate up to tell her about this whole thing. And she was like, just write it down. And I go, I can't write it down. There's like too much. And she goes, well then just make a tape recording of yourself. She goes, I can't listen to this. You're fucked up. And I was like, you don't understand. Like, this is how great ideas. Like I, there's, there's a book here. Like this is real. And so I was literally up all night and then finally I got her to go with me. We had to drive and go find some pot. I'll never forget just being like, there's, this is bad. Like this is, I'm, I was so high. I thought maybe I needed to go to the hospital or something, except that my ideas were too good, like coming too fast and furious and too good that I didn't, but I needed to come down. So I was awake for like a day and a half. Just in like a Coke frenzy.
1: Oh my God. That's bad, right? That's fantastic. I love it. Do you feel like doing a uh, fear off, love off? Sure, yeah. Did you, uh, are you going to- I wrote some down, yeah. Awesome. Let's do this. I am going to be doing- Mine are a little bit sad. That's all
0: right. Okay.
1: I'm going to be doing some fears- Okay. From my uh, listener. Let's see, which one do I want? Do you think this helps people? From from what they say, uh, I get emails from people that say they do it with their friends now, like at dinner they'll have fear offs. I mean the whole podcast, the oh, whole the podcast? thing. Yeah, um, I think so. I think so. Um, or do you think it's just a bunch of voyeurs that are like, God, I think those both. people are fucked up? I think both. I think. Um, I think we get three different types of listeners i think we get people that find comfort from it i think we get people that are voyeurs and are entertained by it and i think we get people who have a loved one that has something that we're talking about and they want to understand it better right Um, i've gotten a couple of emails from people who had a loved one commit suicide and they and they emailed me and said that they now understand better what that person was dealing with and what what it must have felt like and, right. and it, while they certainly don't you know they aren't okay with the fact that that person killed themselves they they feel comforted by having an idea of what that person was living with right um and then there's probably people that just listen out of out of spite
0: yeah i i mean people there are so many people in this world that are just angry and like to hate yeah. people for no reason.
1: I don't get I don't get many hateful emails though. I think because we we hate on us before they even have a chance to. Mhm. True. All right. You want to start? Okay,
0: I have a fear of my husband uh leaving me for somebody much less complicated.
1: <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I'm going to be reading the fears of uh, La La Latte Junkie. Okay. And uh, she says, I fear that I will never be doing enough for my family.
0: Oh, I have that one, too. It's not a competition, La La Latte. Uh, Okay, I have a fear that I'm going to start eating sugar again and then not be able to stop until I've gained 50 pounds.
1: Uh, She says, I fear that my autistic daughter will not grow up to live a meaningful life in society.
0: Hmm. I fear that my daughter, who uh, is a tomboy to the extreme,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. one of my ones that's turning five, I fear that she will uh, get teased in school and not fit in and be sad.
1: Uh, She says, I fear that I will never feel normal despite being on medication. I have that fear.
0: I fear driving Route 1. Those cliffs, (laughs) my parents used to drive them stoned, and I have such a fear of just falling off of a cliff. And that's how I'll die, falling off a cliff.
1: Driven by hippies. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. She says, I fear I can't find... Oh, uh, I fear I will never fulfill my dream of being a writer, although I have started a romance erratic novel. uh, I can't find the time to finish it.
0: I fear reading an erotic novel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I... I don't know if I've ever read... Oh, I read something by Anais uh, Nin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. When I was in my 20s and having all my one-night stands, I took an acting class with a, a, a woman who was like 10 years older than me, and I... I think I was just like her little boy toy. And she would give me erotic books to read, I guess, to get me like, oh like, God. like a 20 year old guy needed to be, <laughs> you know, uh, coaxed into right. being, being horny. Right. But, uh, I think that's the only one I've ever read It was called Little Birds. It was a bunch of little, little stories. I have
0: not read that. And I must be the only housewife that's never read Fifty Shades of Grey, but I don't really yeah. have much interest in that.
1: Yeah. You're you're not into. I'll just read
0: Penthouse forum if I need some porn. Why you know? Why dumb it down? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I fear. Well, this goes back to the fear of my husband leaving me for someone. Le- but I fear. I have a fear of being broken up with. I have a fear of my marriage isn't working, and I don't know that. I don't know. Yes. I don't see it coming. Yeah.
1: I have that. I have that fear. And too. then
0: all of a sudden he says, "No, it hasn't been working for years," <laughs> right. and I go, "Oh, why, why didn't you say something?"
1: Yeah. Uh, Latte Junkie says, "I fear I am narcissistic and important in my head, but everyone around me secretly laughs at how much of a loser I really am." That's okay, a good one.
0: I have that one too. Yeah. Yeah, I fear that I, I have a fear of people not liking me and secretly thinking that I'm selfish and narcissistic. And
1: and there's some secret about you, a, th- a trait that you have that you don't even realize you have. And it defines you. And other people are just r- rolling their eyes yes. at how obvious it is about you. Yes. Yeah.
0: And that no one will have the courage to tell me yes. that thing. Yeah.
1: Did you have one? Are you are you out?
0: Uh, well, I have a fear of my daughters having an eating disorder mm. or thinking they're fat. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really fat. So you know,
1: <laughs> just kidding,
0: just kidding.
1: She says, "I fear the economy completely failing and America being thrown back into a depressive state we will never recover from." I
0: fear waking up and having anxiety. And not having any method of coping with it anymore.
1: Mm. She says, I fear anyone who is extreme about religion or politics.
0: Ooh, yeah. I fear Scientologists.
1: She says, I fear child services taking my daughter away from me because they think I am unable to care for her properly due to all of her delays, special needs, and the struggle to keep her weight up.
0: Wow. Wow. You know, I have a, uh, for my, one of my twins is, was born small. I have a fear that people think, okay, so one of my twins was, didn't let her, where she attached mm-hmm. wasn't, it was, had scarring. They found out later, but so she has something called IUGR, which is intrauterine growth restriction. So she was born only two pounds at 34 weeks. And. I had a real fear when I stopped drinking that people would think that the reason she's small was because I drank when I was pregnant, which I didn't do. Um, But I have a, yeah, I mean, I had tons of fear about her. She's very small Mm. still. She's like 15 pounds lighter than her twin sister.
1: And I have a fear of her health. I can't imagine how intense parents' fears of child-related things must, must be. How many of them there must be and how intense they must be. Um, Latte Junkie says, uh, I fear that one day the beast depression will win. These are dark. This is the place.
0: (laughs) I think I've given you all my, all my, all mine.
1: Uh, It is amazing. The synchronicity Uh, that that was her last fear. Oh, really? I can't tell you how many times this happens on the, on the show that there's just these weird Weird uh, moments of uh, synchronicity. I'll kick it off with uh, her loves. Okay. Uh, She says, I love when my daughter spontaneously says, I love you, mommy, despite her speech delay.
0: Aww. I love... The feeling of being really obsessed with a song where I have to play it until I'm just sick of it. And I, I love when I get one and I go, it, it happened. Like it, there's yes. like a tipping point when I go, oh my God, I have to, now I have to listen to this song until I'm sick of it.
1: <laughs> I do the same thing. That's hilarious. Uh, it's she like says, one of our
0: last things we can be obsessed with,
1: right? Right. She writes, I love anything pumpkin flavored in the fall. That's a good one.
0: Oh, me too. Latte lover and I are are kind of alike, Mm. I think. I think we're meant to be friends. I love the smell of jet fuel.
1: Oh, are
0: you kidding me? No, I love it. Really? Always have since I was a little kid.
1: Oh, it almost makes me barf on the spot.
0: Maybe we're not meant to
1: be friends. (laughs) (laughs) She says, um, I love when my husband randomly calls me uh, to go out to lunch on my break like a date. Oh, that's sweet.
0: Yeah, I love the black jelly bean. <laughs> Me
1: too. You and do. the black chuckle.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love a black chuckle. Yeah.
1: Uh, she says, I love that my family is absolutely fucking nuts. That's a good one.
0: Wow. I don't. I love uh, finding stuff on eBay from the 70s, like wacky packs mm-hmm. or clogs or something. And... and- buying myself something
1: nice pair of earth yeah. shoes yes
0: <laughs> Familares. do you remember those no those are the shoes that they're the rubber bottom and they wave oh in right a way, yeah
1: she writes i love walking down main street in my small town and looking in all the windows of the mom and pop shops seeing how they put so much time and thought into their window displays that's a that's a great one
0: yeah I love it when my daughter tries something new that she was afraid of. I like the look on her face of pure triumph when she yeah. goes on a scary ride or or goes somewhere late she, when she overcomes a fear. There's there's like it it gives me such a rush.
1: Oh, that's that has to be really cool. Uh, should I
0: mention my love of Vicodin? You
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you could get a Vicodin Injected black chuckle and just eat those all day. Oh God! And black licorice uh, helps you poop, so it actually would it would take care of all of that. That would be that's somebody needs to invent that. Somebody needs to jump right on that.
0: (laughs) I'm going to have to ask you to sign a waiver that, in case I do, go ahead and go forward with my invention of that. You can have it.
1: Latte Junkie says, I love when my cat Dexter, yes, he is named after the fictional serial killer, wakes me every morning by kneading my pillow and purring.
0: Oh, well, I'll jump off of hers and say that I love when an episode of Dateline starts and somebody's just been brutally killed. (laughs) And I got especially love when it's a two hour Dateline special.
1: I, I find something very comforting about documentaries about really dark shit. Me too. You know, it's like a pillow that I just curl I, up in and like, oh, there's oh, there's darkness el- elsewhere in the world, not yeah. just in my head.
0: Yeah. Oh, my husband hates it. He hates it and he will leave the room and he does not understand why I love it so much. Why <laughs> Law and order. I'll take anything, but if it's based on a real story, yes. I'll, it's so much better. Yeah. If, if it's a documentary... Yeah, I'm in.
1: Oh, my God. That, that, that must be an alcoholic thing. All these, these were so similar. We're so similar. It was, is it,
0: this is going to be an airing episode,
1: right? Yes, yes. It's, all the episodes get shelved for a while because I have a backlog of, <sighs> of many episodes.
0: Uh, for anybody who's listening that's wondering about the behind-the-scenes stuff, Paul sends an email that just says, just to let you know, this episode might not air at all. Just
1: just putting that out there. Part of it might air. Might
0: air in a year. Might not air ever. Might not just air know ever. That. Yeah. And that, of course, you know, he threw the gauntlet down to, like, make this the best episode ever. <laughs> this is going to air if I have to kill myself with honesty.
1: <laughs> You're very honest. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And uh, people can catch your show on... Nick- Go to nickmom.com
0: and you can put in... Your zip code, and it will tell you, or your air, not your your zip code, and it'll tell you what time and what channel it airs near you.
1: Okay, and they can go. It's to, a grown up show, and, by and the they way. Can it's go funny uh, to stephanie dot Wilder-Taylor. yeah. com.
0: Stephanie Wilder Taylor.
1: Wilder Taylor and Stephanie is spelled S T E F A N I E. Yeah. Um,
0: or just Google it. You know? Just fucking Google it. Just, it's not that hard,
1: people. The fuck, you're just laying there depressed anyway. <laughs> just re- l- roll over I mean don't
0: you get drunk and google shit isn't that what people do? <laughs>
1: yeah. If you're sober
0: don't do that but you know.
1: Thank you so much Stephanie.
0: Okay, thanks Paul.
1: Many thanks to Stephanie Wilder Taylor. Um I really enjoyed that that conversation with her. Um so articulate at uh expressing so many things that are not easy uh to always articulate, and uh, always appreciate when I when I get a guest like that, and somebody that just makes me laugh, and kicks my ass at cards. You know what? Fuck her, fuck her. I might have just turned on her. It might have been unfair. Uh, before I take it out with a uh, an email I got from a listener. I want to remind you that there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support it financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. brings me a little closer to my dream of uh, supporting myself doing this this show. You can... um, Do a monthly uh, recurring donation for as little as five bucks a month, which doesn't seem a lot to you maybe, but it it means the world to me. So um, much appreciative to the people who have stepped forward and done that. Um, You can also support the show by uh, going through our Amazon search link. On our homepage when you buy something at Amazon, and then Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. Doesn't cost you anything. That uh search portal is on our homepage, right hand side about halfway down. It's kind of small, but it's it's there. Kinda like my penis. Um <laughs> oh. it's nice having your own podcast. You can just plow right ahead. Just plow right ahead. Um You can also support the show non-financially by going to uh, iTunes, giving us a good rating, Uh, writing something nice about the show if you feel so inclined. Uh, That brings uh, our ranking up and that Brings more people to the show. And you can also spread uh, word through social media about the podcast. That is greatly appreciated. And you can also um, sign up and be a transcriber. been having uh, a lot of people sign up to do that lately. And they're transcribing the old episodes. Many, many thanks to you guys out there. Um, you know who you are. And I really, really appreciate it. Um, I think that's about it. So I'm going to... Take it out with this email I got from uh, a listener calls themselves Jay. I can't remember if this is a, a man or a woman, um, but I'm going to read their their email. It says, Hiya, Paul. I gotta lo- you got to love an email that starts out with, Hiya. I just love that. Um, Ever since I can remember... I suffered from serious anxiety, and then around 13 I started having problems with depression. When people ask me what I remember about my childhood, I mostly remember being nervous. I was nervous about school, friends, siblings, parents, and God. I was convinced that I would get leprosy because of sinning and would constantly check my nose and ears to see if they were falling off because, as everyone knows, those are the first parts to go. I remember not sleeping because I had to go to school in the morning, crying to my parents to homeschool me because math class made me so nervous. One time crying in front of my class because I couldn't solve a math problem. As I got older, it got worse. I was a trumpet player and had a very aggressive band teacher. During pep band season, he would test the trumpets by soloing. I was sick every day and used to fantasize about breaking my hands so I could quit playing. That dream was crushed when a fellow trumpeter broke his hand and was forced by the band teacher to continue playing even with his hand in a cast. What a dick. When I was a senior, I was the TA for the school office and when someone would come to deliver something, I would physically hide under the desk. I couldn't answer the telephone or doors. If I had to order pizza over the phone, I would first cry and try to prepare myself. Then I would write myself a note because I would get so nervous I would forget my name. I couldn't drive. My parents had to force me to get my license. I would have panic attacks driving, and I would also get so nervous that I would forget how to drive and make dangerous mistakes. I also had serious social phobias. My entire life, I felt like people were watching me and judging me. I was extremely nervous in crowds and would shut down. Luckily, I became a pretty good actress and people rarely noticed my severe social anxieties or they just didn't care. I avoided parties at all costs. My parents would try to make me hang out with people. All I wanted to do was go home after school and sleep because people around me all day would exhaust me. Then I was also depressed. As long as I can remember, I remember being alone and knowing that I would always be alone. I struggled with cutting, eating disorders, and other forms of self-abuse. During my senior year of high school, I became anorexic and lost a massive amount of weight. I had always been overweight, and it was the first time in my life I was skinny, and I was miserable. Basically, I lived in a deep pit of despair, and eventually gained all the weight back and then some. A lot of some, actually. After going to college and dealing with more bad things, blah, 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 I finally started to understand myself. I got a really good therapist, got put on great anti-anxiety, antidepressant uh medicines, moved home. Pursued a spiritual relationship with my God, opened up to friends, started exercising, and started for the first time in my life treating myself with respect, damn it. I had never valued myself enough to to take care of me, and how could I when I hated myself so deeply? Then I started to love who I was. I realized that this is the body I am in. This is the brain I was given, and these are the obstacles I have to face, and that is okay. No one has a perfect life. Everyone has problems to overcome, and I can overcome mine. Yeah, it takes work, and sometimes I don't do well, but I am conscious for the first time in my life. I think about what I do and what I say. I try not to judge others anymore and try to put myself in their position first. I've discovered that very rarely people are acting out because of you. They are acting that way because of their pain and their past. And if you treat someone with love and respect, things usually work out better. To tell the truth, I've never been this happy in my life. Yes, I'm still extremely overweight, but I'm working on it. And I am not obsessed with how I look. I no longer compare myself to others. I don't feel the need to surround myself with things. I'm honest with everyone around me. I no longer hide or am ashamed of my anxieties. And I respect that I have certain triggers that I can stay away from or modify. I actually wake up joyful. Can you believe that? Joyful. I know you understand the gravity of that since you suffer from depression as well. And I didn't even know that was fucking possible. And I am content. Have you ever felt that? Where you feel good where you are at. It is amazing. My perspective on my life has totally changed. And I never want to go back. Some of my friends ask me if I want to get off my medicines because of some of the side effects, and I used to go off my meds all the time because I wanted to, quote, fix myself through determination and shit like that. Now I tell them, hell no, are you kidding me? I don't want to fade away into nothingness anymore. I am no longer afraid to leave the house. I can go to the grocery stores and not flip out. I'm excited about the future. I wanted to say that if you are willing to do the work, your life can change. I know it is hard. Frick. I didn't... I love when she says Frick. I think it's a she. Uh, Frick. I didn't do it forever, but it is so worth it. Find a therapist. Find out if you need medications or not. Go through all the months of trying meds and getting off meds. Start exercising. Do positive affirmations. Be honest with how you feel or what you think, what you think with the people in your life. Find your spirituality, and that can be anything. Think about what you say and do and why you do them. And most importantly, treat yourself and others with love. Because if you act from a place of love, you will see how your thoughts and actions will change. Man, I sound man, I sound like a know-it-all, but I don't care. And yes, I'm only 24 and don't know much, but I do know pain, and I do know what it feels like to be free of it. So please, Paul, tell your listeners, whenever you can, or you think about it, that their lives aren't going to change by doing nothing. You really have to do the work, but fuck It is so worth it. It is so freaking worth it. That is so beautiful. And I love how you said fuck and then freaking. That was just one too many fuck for you. You had to pull back on the fucks. I get it. You're 24. You don't want to use all your fuck-ups. Your fucks up? You don't want to use all your fucks early in your life. I'm going to save some of them for for the retirement home. I get it. But in all seriousness, that... That is the kind of email that I live for. That is the reason why I started doing this show and to help myself because honestly, uh, I can be kind of a sad, lonely motherfucker and this show connects me to you guys and I love it. I love it. This this show gives me all the feelings I've always wanted in my life in a package and never expected it to come in. And it really feels good. So if you're out there and you're stuck, there is hope. You are not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is
1: bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is weird bizarrely fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.